Biden and DeSantis trade jabs and big trouble and little Albany coming up on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Hey, thanks for joining us on a Friday or wherever or whenever you're hearing this. Uh, great to have you with us. I'm Vince Colonnese with my buddy Jason Nichols. Uh, as always, make sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast wherever you can find it, especially on YouTube. Uh, that's the Daily Caller YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, comment, and share uh, what we're up to today. What are we up to today, Jason Nichols? <laughs> well, it's an interesting day where you have the president and a governor going at it, trading barbs, uh, disagreeing on what the next step should be in order to contain the Delta variant. Um, so of course, Ron DeSantis does not want any mask mandates. He is saying that he is barring all mask mandates throughout the state. Uh, the president obviously had some problems with that and he used a rap battle line when asked about uh, DeSantis. And that is, he said, Governor who? Uh, which I always <laughs> love that response. You know what I mean? Like, who is that guy? He's not important. Uh -huh. um, and we're confident course, and we're confident Biden didn't just forget. Yeah, no, we're, we're confident about that. <laughs> okay, got He clearly knows who, who Ron DeSantis is. Uh, maybe some other governors he may have forgotten, but not, uh -huh. not Ron DeSantis. Um, DeSantis is blaming the pandemic on uh, undocumented immigrants, which is kind of a strange defense, but it's a, I think it's a good way of kind of segueing, you know, from a political standpoint, segueing back and throwing the blame back at Biden for the border, which is obviously a difficult situation where I don't think Biden is pleasing anybody right now, whether it's the left or the right. Uh, so I kind of want to get your reaction to, to this sparring session between uh, one of America's most powerful governors and of course, the president of the United States, duly elected. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I, I Are you sensing that this may be a 2024 preview that we're seeing play out? I, it does seem like uh, that this is a bit of a contest that has some, uh, like, you know, importance to it, like that we may be previewing something bigger that's coming uh, down the pike, especially if uh, Biden decides to do what he's already suggested he will likely do, which is run for reelection. And, you know, he, he may end up on a debate stage against this guy, Ron DeSantis. Um, I, I think what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida is uh, very interesting. And it's also definitely appealing to a lot of conservatives nationwide who've been looking for somebody to stand up to sort of the authoritarian impulses that we've seen out of the government at all levels for the duration of the pandemic. There's just been a lot of mandates and requirements and social distancing and you got to wear the mask on your face and you have to get the vaccine all by order of the federal government or order of your local government or or order of some of these businesses so what DeSantis is doing for a lot of people uh is a breath of fresh air it's the guy saying hey look these are all things you should and can do like get vaccinated he's held 50 different events where he's promoted vaccinations he's got all these supermarkets down in pub, public, specifically all these supermarkets down in Florida, he's working with to distribute the vaccinations. His state among seniors, 80% vaccinated. Um, he's been pushing really hard on that, but his position's always been, you don't need a government mandate to do this. Uh, and that's really distinguished him, I think, Jason. Yeah, I think that's an interesting uh, idea. And while you know Florida certainly has lots of fresh air indoors, it does not. 
And we've seen the pandemic is uh, being carried right now by Florida. Um, for over the last four days, Florida has broken its record for number of COVID-19 hospitalizations uh, since the pandemic started. And about a quarter of all COVID uh, infections nationwide are in Florida. Um, so I think Florida's in, in a tough situation. And on top of that, when we talk about schools, um, you know, DeSantis has said he will defund schools uh, that don't, that impose mask mandates, regardless of how badly things are going in terms of the Delta variant and uh, COVID infections and hospitalizations. And he's blaming the media, which is, I think, a useful tactic on both sides where, you know, everybody, when something goes wrong, they blame people for covering it, um, mm -hmm. which I think is always kind of troubling. Um, I do think, you know, in terms of your first point, in terms of this being a preview of 2024, it certainly could be. But DeSantis right now, his approval rating is really low. So I looked this up. He's at 43.7% and polls have him losing uh, to former Governor Charlie Crist. Um, and those same polls have Biden at 49%. This, so um, while is, is this Florida you're talking about or nationwide? Yeah. This is Florida. Okay. Um, this is Florida. I think it's St. Pete polls or something. Uh, it's coming out of, uh, I believe, probably St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg Times, probably. Right. So um, DeSantis is not quite as popular uh, as he once was uh, right now with some of the things that are going on in his state. And he's, you know, he's obviously frustrated and he's lashing out, but he's trying to stand by uh, what he sees as his principles. I think that this, in terms of its political implication, of course, if he's able to weather this thing, uh, he is probably the Republicans strongest candidate uh, going into 2024. I mean, other than perhaps Donald Trump. Uh, I don't think Nikki Haley's going anywhere. I don't think uh, some of these other people, if we're looking at the landscape right now and nothing really changes, uh, DeSantis is a new face. Um, he's young. Uh, people have talked about a Trump-DeSantis ticket. I don't think that will happen. Uh, I don't think Donald Trump wants someone who will upstage him or who could possibly upstage him. And uh, that's why he chose Pence in the first place. So he would never choose DeSantis because DeSantis has a little too much charisma. He has a little too much of a following. And I think that's smart politics. This is why people were asking Hillary Clinton in 2016, uh, you should choose... Um, Castro out of Texas, you know, he's the guy. He was, you know, the guy from HUD. He was the rising star. So uh, you should choose um, Castro. And she chose pretty much like a political wet blanket in, um, what's his, what's his Tim name? Kane. Tim Kaine. Thank you. See, I even <laughs> forgot his name and, I, and I'm the left guy. And I, and I forgot Tim Kaine's name. So, uh, and, and I think Tim Kaine is a, is a good, you know, left of center politician. Like he's, there's nothing wrong with Tim Kaine, mm -hmm. but she realized Tim Kaine will not upstage Hillary Clinton. It will not be the Tim Kaine show. Um, sure. The only person sure. we've seen actually take that risk recently has been Joe Biden uh, by taking Kamala Harris. And we've seen that that hasn't happened. She honestly has not upstaged Joe Biden thus far. 
But I think because he wanted to appease younger elements of the party, he was able to take that that risk. Uh, and they knew they had to fire off the biggest guns they possibly could against Donald Trump. But I don't think Donald Trump yeah. is going to take DeSantis. I think DeSantis is a very possible 2024 candidate. And of course, if he can carry Florida, that's that's, you know, 20 percent of the battle uh, when it comes to it's the Electoral College. It's a big deal. Yeah. Kamala Harris. I have a different theory on Kamala Harris. We can explore it in another episode. But basically, it's that uh, Silicon Valley was very much in her pocket. So it was a big deal to put her on the ticket. The donations to the Biden campaign exploded from big dollar donors after she joined the ticket. She wasn't that politically popular, of course, during the Democratic primary. I mean, even her right. own state wanted her to drop out. Um, right. But she did offer some big money advantages to the Biden campaign, which came in really handy. Uh, after they announced her selection. Um, so go ahead. Can, I, can I push back on that really quickly? Yeah, you can go um, for it. One of the reasons that Kamala Harris uh, struggled and one of the reasons she had to drop out was money issues, you know, even though she comes from the big donor state. So I'm not so sure that that Silicon Valley was so excited uh, about right. her that she had all this, you know, all this cash. I think that Silicon Valley just wanted and met much of the business community, believe it or not, wanted Joe Biden. Um, I think that that's what drove his donations up and and put him in that position to have money to spend. But um, I really and I also think, you know, dropping out of debates and things like that didn't help Republicans. But that's that's a separate issue. Mm -hmm. But I I definitely think that, um, you know, Kamala Harris, her pockets weren't that deep during the the primary. Right. So, but that my theory on that is that's because money tends to chase, uh, you know, the possibility of success. And so and time and time again, in these these early state polls, Kamala wasn't doing it. And so as a result, the money wasn't there. As soon as it's evident, though, that you're going to take off with the electorate and can actually survive that primary process, that's when money starts pouring in. So I anyway, that's just that is my theory on that, because yeah. I always thought it was interesting that she's not the best retail politician. And, you know, uh, but they, they made a lot of money when she joined the ticket. That's for sure. Then there's um, the the fight against Ron DeSantis. I, again, it goes right back to my point before. I, I think that the most important thing about what DeSantis is doing, and I know I know a lot of people on the left and some people on the right who are pro mandate are mad at him for not issuing more mandates. But God, it is so it's so it's such a good feeling to know that there are people out there who are erring on the side of liberty who are saying like, look, there's only so much the state should do. That's really where I am. I, I think it's really a big deal that Ron DeSantis came out, issued this executive order where he said, look, parents, if you wanna mask up your kids, you can, but if you don't, you don't have to. And, and that's where I'd like to see the government continue to be at arm's length, basically offering good guidance, good advice, and then leaving those decisions in the hands of the electorate, which is where they should be. Well, again, I don't think anybody is pro-mandate. And the other thing is he is legislating uh, from Tallahassee for the entire state and not allowing local officials to make decisions uh, and local schools and local governments to make their own decisions, um, which when you talk about liberty and authoritarianism and all that, you know, that kind of calls that into question. But I would say this, I, I really believe that we should look at the situation 
I don't think anybody is pro-mandate statewide under all circumstances. But if you are in a hot spot, and right now, according to the Miami Herald, children under 12 are the group that's seen the sharpest increase in cases over the last month. They are, you know, the ones who are getting it um, the most. And of course, like you said, they they carry it to vulnerable people and to people throughout the state. Um, and Overall, you know, hospitalizations, you know, uh, in Florida are now seeing more COVID-19 patients than at any time during the pandemic. I think that right now we should leave it up to local officials to decide what's safe for their particular communities. Um, doesn't have to come from the state. And, you know, when you look at our position here at the, you know, the universe, uh, here in the state of Maryland, you know, our governor refuses to do any mask mandates, but he's allowing local officials to make decisions based on where their numbers are at. And the number of children contracting COVID-19 um, has increased fivefold since the end of June. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's up 84% in the last week alone, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. We need to pay attention to these things. This could be an issue. Kids are getting sick. Kids are in the ICU. But like you said, they're often carriers and can spread it to others in their communities. Now, does that mean that every kid in the state of Florida should have to wear a mask? Absolutely not. In every school? Absolutely not. But when you've got a situation, maybe there is an outbreak in a school system. Should they or could they wear masks in order to avoid shutdowns and, and other issues? Uh, because people are getting hospitalized and sick and it's coming out of schools, we should leave that to local officials. And I think that's the argument against what Ron DeSantis is doing. Yeah, and, and meanwhile, my, my point is, I'm bringing this all the way down to the smallest form of governance, which is, and the most intimate, which is the family. And he's saying, I'm not mandating that, that's a choice for you as a family, uh, which I, I appreciate. I think it's a, a good move. But I look, the issues yeah, well, around kids, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I, I apologize for, for interrupting, but no let, let me just say it's not about um, necessarily mandating masks. Mm -hmm. It's the ban from local officials being able to do so. You he's know what I mean? So he's preventing mandates. Right. So local officials, if some town in Florida, we're talking about a state that has 400 cities um, and many counties, I'm forgetting the number. We're telling those places, and some of the places in Florida are more yeah. vulnerable than others. Yeah. You know, you're saying that they can't make decisions, even if they are experiencing, you know, high hospitalization rates, high deaths, yeah. and all these things in order to keep from their schools having to shut down. And so that's here's, the problem. So here's what, what can happen in Florida. I have a couple of thoughts on this. One is that each of these counties, are permitted to mandate their own employees. So the county employees can be mandated to wear masks within the state of Florida. Uh, they can't issue a blanket mandate on the community. So they can't force businesses in their community to mask up. Those businesses can, as a precondition for, for service, make a mask mandate internally if they'd like to. Uh, so there, there's a lot of, in other words, like what Ron DeSantis has done here is said, this is up to each institution to make these decisions. It's up to each family to make, make these decisions. You're right. You can't, as a, as a county uh, under in Florida's rules, say everyone has to wear a mask. Now, 
there's another component to this, and it's the the value of these mask mandates and to what extent they uh, are meaningful in terms of wielding influence. Remember, Governor Greg Abbott this past year got rid of the mask mandate in Texas, and we saw a, a rash of headlines that came out that suggested that Greg Abbott was about to kill citizens in his own state by virtue of getting rid of the mandate. That, of course, ended up not being true. The, in, the inverse happened. Things improved dramatically in Texas uh, and stayed in an in a improvement curve. Uh, in Texas after the mask mandate went away. And additionally, lots of Texans decided on their own to keep wearing masks. They just made that decision on their own. And, and finally, I'll submit one last thing to you on masks. We heard from a guy called Dr. Michael Osterholm recently. He was an epidemiologist that served on Joe Biden's COVID advisory team during the campaign. And he was on um, CNN this past week. And he said, because I don't want to confuse anybody, but the reality is that these cloth masks, the ones that most people wear, you just take a piece of cloth, put it over your face, really not that effective, he said. It's the N95, that's the actual game changer. And nobody really talks about this, but the effect of that is essentially that the cloth masks are more theatrical than they are preventative, uh, whereas the N95 masks truly do make some meaningful difference. Um, I think that's interesting and actually kind of important. So when you issue a mask mandate, why issue a valueless mask mandate? Why not issue one that actually has effect rather than just conveys a message? So the, the research that I've read about the cloth masks is that they are not as effective, but not that they are completely ineffective. You know, so I, I think that, right. you know, saying that it, it would be you know, valueless, I think is a little bit of hyperbole, but I do agree with you that the N95 is the one that is the most effective. That's what I wear uh, when I go into stores and, and places of business. Um, and we also need to remember again, in Florida, uh, 32 kids are hospitalized per day right now. That's, that's what they're working with. So this idea that no kids are being hospitalized why not actually, as we've always said, follow the science, see where in the state these 32 kids are being hospitalized? Where are they in the PICU? Um, you know, where are they uh, suffering the most? Is it coming from schools or is it coming from home or all these kinds of things? Mm -hmm. let's, uh, let's figure that out on a local level and perhaps maybe one area, maybe one school needs to needs to have their students mask up to avoid uh, having to shut down. You know, I, I don't think that that is unreasonable. But when you start saying that no one, you know, can say everyone has to wear a mask for two weeks or or whatever, or there's an outbreak in a school and you can't mandate that people wear masks for a couple of uh, a couple of days or a couple of weeks. I think that that is just a little bit, you know, or for the liberty argument, I think that that's going a little far um, over and running over public health. I also just want to ask you about uh, the governor's response to the Biden administration, where right. he blamed the uptick in COVID-19 nationwide on the border and undocumented immigration. Did that have any value or was that just kind of a tantrum? Well, it's important to, to cite. And it's, I think, 
The, the reality of the fact is that the Biden administration is reportedly moving now towards mandating uh, anybody who travels into the country, foreign nationals who travel into the country, uh, they want to mandate vaccines for all that air travel. Um, and so in order to basically say, if you want, if we're going to open up the borders to people flying in again, uh, it needs to be done with a vaccine mandate. That's their position. Meanwhile, on the southern border, we're seeing thousands and thousands of people coming across to our COVID positive in a very out of control situation and disappearing into the country. Um, that's real. That's genuinely happening. And, uh, and it's not being brought under control. So what DeSantis is fielding this week, and I, I agree, I think the, 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 the fundamental point you're, you're getting at is there's political play here. I agree. Um, what he's doing is he's saying, wait a second, you're going to attack me for the way I'm handling COVID in Florida? And meanwhile, the border is, seems to be completely wide open or it's meaningfully open. And there are all sorts of COVID positive people flowing across the border. And the Biden administration is showing no uh, serious effort to actually abate that crisis. So I, I think it's an entirely reasonable point to make. Um, and I would make a point like that, too, if I was under attack for my handling of COVID. I, I'd, I'd push it right back at that guy, especially, again, in Ron DeSantis's case, he's been doing exactly what the Biden administration would want, with the exception of mandates. He's been pushing very hard for vaccinations in his state uh, and saying that people have that option to get them. Yeah, so um, first, the only thing that I would clear, or there are a couple things that I, I would say about what DeSantis said to Joe Biden. Number one, um, the policy has not changed since the Trump administration, and many people on the left are upset about that. But the policy on immigration, Title 42, which you know is basically uh, a, a temporary block for undocumented people coming into the country, you know, because of COVID-19, that's still in place. That has not changed since the Trump administration. They're actually talking about starting mass deportations again, which again has frustrated many people on the further end of the left spectrum. Um, so this idea that Biden is just, you know, had this open door policy, that's a right wing talking point that's not really grounded in a whole lot of fact. The other thing is DeSantis is quoted as saying uh, the Biden administration is letting immigrants in and, quote, putting them on planes. You and I have discussed that's a true. million times. You and I have discussed a million times. Where is there not a threat of transmission? of COVID-19. Right. On, yeah, Not on I, planes. And, yeah, but, and, but the implication I would think is that they're being dropped and, off in communities right. across the country. Yeah, I, I don't think that that's not grounded in fact. And the other thing is that if they're put on planes, uh, the other thing that I, I would say is that where are masks mandated? I mean, th this, is, <laughs> this is actually uh, not a very strong argument on the part of, of Ron DeSantis and they're not being, at least I haven't seen people being dropped off in my community. I bet you haven't seen them being dropped off in your community. Um, you know, people at the border, I, I think that they have a, uh, an argument and a discussion that needs to be made about the border policy. I think that we need to come together. This is Congress's job to actually come up with some border policies in the short term and certainly in the long term. These are things that, that need to be discussed and should be blamed on Congress, 
not just for the last two years since the pandemic or year and a half since the pandemic, but going back probably a couple of decades, Congress's inaction on immigration. But when you're talking about how this has been spread, when Title 42 is still in place and you know those policies have not changed, uh, I think that that is a lot of you know trying to deflect from your own responsibility. And I understand how uh, leaders try to do this. You know, this is the political calculus. Um, to use a phrase that Vince and Jason Save the Nation loves to use, uh, this is you know the way that they try to deflect from their own responsibility. But right now, Florida is the hot spot for COVID nineteen. There needs to be something done to control this so it doesn't become an even worse situation where you have even more hospitalizations and we're back to 2020. And in some cases, like we said, it's already broken its record for COVID-19 hospitalizations since the pandemic started and we're in 2021. And there are very few places in the country where that's happening other than Florida. Yeah, the border crisis is not fictional, though. I mean, there's definitely like a real serious sure. crisis going on. We've got, we're on track for millions of people to cross the border this year. Uh, we are at record levels. We've got um, a situation where, you know, Title 42, you're right, it does exist. And the Biden administration, to the consternation of the left, especially this past week, announced that they would continue to keep it in place. But the effect of that has not been to deport uh, uh, a meaningful number of people. There have been Many people getting across the border and staying within the United States and, in fact, transported even deeper. We know that ICE has been using military bases on our southern border to fill planes with illegal immigrants and bring them to all sorts of places around the country. That's just a fact. And that's specifically ICE process, places with ICE processing centers around the country. They're trying to distribute the workload uh, around the country. Additionally, you've got charities like Catholic Charities, which receive a tremendous amount of taxpayer money who are involved in busing illegal immigrants all over the place and are putting them inside of shelters, especially in Texas, and right now are not answering meaningful questions about the number of COVID positive patients uh, uh, that they have inside of these shelters. We know COVID has been running rampant inside of these shelters, including in places like Fort Bliss, Texas, where um, many of the uh, children were being held in, in pretty awful conditions. We've seen reports from places like CBS uh, that uh, many of the kids that were within those facilities were suicidal. They were pl being placed on suicide watch um, for um, the, you know, cutting themselves and hurting themselves. And it's just been really, really bad. So in other words, we've got a full blown crisis and I didn't even get to the fentanyl stuff that you and I have talked about before that I think is one of the most meaningful and untalked about crises that's going right now because of our porous Southern border. So with all of that in mind, it is not unreasonable to point at it and say, you want to talk about something that's really dire. It's the situation on the southern border. I think it's totally fair game and it should be brought up more. Um, but I think the press is sort of exhausted by talking about it. There was focus on it at the beginning of the administration, not so much now. And I think that's to our detriment. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, if, I think if anybody is exhausted about talking about anything, it's COVID-19. You know, I, I don't I think the border, you know, is, is less, uh, you know, exhausted you know, or we are less exhausted uh, about talking about the border than we are talking about COVID-19. And many people, um, I think, are ready, you know, certainly ready for this pandemic to move in a different direction. 
Um, and it yeah. seemed like we were getting there. And then you had Florida and Alabama and, and Missouri and Arkansas and those places, uh, which became hotspots and allowed for this to, to continue to be a topic of conversation. I well, do think the border has, Sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Only that we have some hopeful news. I, I did see Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA director, and a couple of others have said that if you look at the way the Delta variant flowed in both India and the UK, uh, it looks like the United States is in the midst or on the backside of its peak now and could be headed down. So um, I'm hopeful that's true. I'm hopeful that's true. We've, yeah. we've got pretty good vaccination rates across the country and plus natural immunity. And, and hopefully that is durable enough to help us um, arrest this Delta variant. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add to that hopeful news that um, in Alabama, which is one of the hotspots, um, vaccination rates are actually going up. More people are getting vaccinated uh, now that the Delta, Delta variant has been taking hold and, you know, people are seeing their loved ones hospitalized and people are seeing people, you know, uh, in some cases die of the Delta variant. People are starting to take it seriously in Alabama and the government in Alabama is starting to take it seriously and, and people are getting vaccinated. So that's a positive thing. Yeah. Um, that will hopefully get this thing under control. Um, I do think, you know, playing politics here, like Ron DeSantis is doing, is not helping anyone. Um, and, you know, the the idea, of course, the, the border is something that's always been talked about. I don't, I don't remember a time when it wasn't being talked about. Um, so that's one place where I think you and I will, will have a little bit of separation there is that, you know, for the last 10 years or so, like, I don't recall not hearing about the border and not hearing about uh, immigration. Um, and I guess what I mean is that, like, Peter Ducey is the only person who's asking about the border in the briefing. That's what I mean. It's like the rest of the news outlets have moved on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that people are concerned about, you know, uh, people within the United States, and they're, and they're certainly... Uh, concerned about, you know, what's going on in Florida and, you know, people in Florida, um, Florida is certainly close to other countries, but it is not on the Mexico border. And that is not the issue. And that is not the cause of why you have the Delta variant going crazy in Florida. It's just not. That's just a deflection and a political one. And that does no one any good. Um, if you want to make an argument for the, and, and I think you made a very good one for uh, Ron DeSantis's actions um, and his banning of mandates, I, I don't agree with it. Uh, but if you want to make an argument for that, that's, that's reasonable. I think that that's a reasonable thing to do. Um, and, you know, that's what we do here on this show. But when you start deflecting and, you know, all of a sudden, what about, what about, what about? I think that doesn't do the American people any good. It certainly doesn't improve public health. And I think that that's just, uh, you know, the kind of politics that we don't need um, in this country. But with that, we'll probably get into a little bit of a what about. You know? So uh, I, I'd like to ask you about, um, you know, this situation with, with Cuomo. And, you know, Letitia James, the AG in uh, the state of New York, uh, who most people know for, you know, holding Trump 
accountable or holding the Trump organization accountable um, is also right now, she finished her investigation, came out publicly, and the results of her investigation say that while he was in Albany, that Chris Cuomo, excuse me, not Chris, apologies, no, Andrew, not Chris, just want to be clear. Not Chris. And not Mario. And not Mario. <laughs> None of the other Cuomos that we know. Uh, Andrew, Governor yes. Andrew Cuomo uh, is accused of having uh, sexually assaulted uh, more than 10 women. I think the number is at 11. It was a bit, uh, it was a, a little bit of sexual assault, mostly sexual harassment of 11 women. Right. Um, so I, I want to get your immediate reaction to that and put it in context with some of the other things that we've talked about, you and I um, have mm -hmm. had some conversations and if people want to go back and look at some of our, our other episodes yep. where we talked about Brett Kavanaugh, we talked about, you know, and the calls for him to resign. And we've talked about um, uh, Clarence Thomas and we've talked about some other individuals. You know, I, I don't think we ever got to Matt Gates, but some of the other individuals who have been asked to resign um, based on allegations. And right. I, I kind of want to see what, what your thoughts are on people who are demanding on both the left and the right, probably even more the left than the right, but the left and the right who are demanding Cuomo be uh, or him resign uh, without necessarily, um, you know, the full due process. Yep. Yep. Great question. Um I think everybody should be afforded due process for sure. I, I think that if he should resign, it should be more on the basis of the nursing home scandal right now than the sexual harassment scandal. Uh, I think that there's, there's a ton of evidence in the public record that uh, Andrew Cuomo was covering up the number of deaths in the nursing homes as a result of his order putting sick patients back in those nursing homes. Uh, he's very much struggled to uh, explain that. And it came at a time when he was making $5 million on a book uh, so the, the incentives also seem really clear there uh, for why he was misleading the public. So for that reason, I think that's far more scandalous, actually, than the sexual harassment scandal. The sexual harassment scandal, of course, matters. The allegations matter. And directly to your point, he should be afforded due process. That is, This should, of course, uh, go through um, the court system and that any women who want to pursue uh, civil charges or criminal charges against him should be able to do that. I know the Manhattan DA and the Albany DA uh, are both apparently taking going to take a criminal swing at this. Uh, you've got the impeachment proceeding arriving in the New York State Legislature, um, so there is going to be some some sort some form of process associated with the allegations here, uh, and he's entitled to that. And I think on this point of due process, I think what has occurred especially over the last decade, has been, and there's a reason I think the left generally has to call for his resignation here, mm -hmm. is because I think due process itself has been somewhat inverted in the United States, that allegations themselves are often seen as convictions, as, as you know, this is, these are verdicts. The allegation becomes the verdict, and that is a very dangerous place to go as a country. Um, I mean, I, I'm looking at what's happened on college campuses, for instance, where people who were accused of sexual assault would be bounced off of the campus without any meaningful 
uh, justifiable due process being afforded to the to the accused. And that's that's disastrous in the United States of America. The late Ruth Bader Ginsburg was opposed to that completely. She said she she was in favor of a due process being afforded to the accused because that's the way our system is and should be built. Um, so I think your underlying point that you're implicitly making is, look, being a, a, accused of something is not good enough. You should be able to have the right to fight your way to, to prove that you're innocent and to, and to fight back against those allegations. Yeah, I would agree about the nursing home scandal. And, you know, there are people, I think, around the country, honestly, um, if it can be proven, again, I'm not so sure certain that it's been proven um, that, and, and this, this might be something that Letitia James is looking at as well, is proven that he had the data and purposefully obfuscated it or, or purposefully hid it. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not so certain that that's been proven either. So if we're talking about, you know, due process, then I guess he has to be afforded that due process as well. He is. He um, should be. He should be. My only yeah. point is that the public evidence is is uh, very much tilted against him in that story. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, because I, I've looked at other governors, including DeSantis, and there are people who say that he hasn't been forthright with some of the data on on nursing homes and nursing home uh, hospitalizations and deaths and, and all of that. Um, I think it was it, it was a tough moment. I, I don't I'm, if he's guilty of that, then I absolutely not only should he be bounced out of his job, but he should probably be in cuffs. Right. You know, um, I think that that was, you know, egregiously uh, terrible, if true. Um, but I think it's it's a tough situation with with allegations. And, I, you know, I, I'm I'm honestly not sure how I feel about it. You know, um, the the investigation seems very much damning. Um, when it comes to Brett Kavanaugh, for example, now we know there really wasn't an investigation that was done. Um, so, you know, in terms of the FBI, and it was it was more FBI failures in terms of actually doing an investigation and following up on leads. Um, you know, and the denial, I think it is, you are, when we talk, talk about the presumption of innocence and many of the things that you bring up and due process, that actually, that absolutely applies when we're talking about criminal liability. But when we're talking about your job, you're not necessarily entitled to that. You know, so that's, that's my position is if, you know, I stop working with this podcast and then I go to CNN and I try to get a job and CNN calls Vince Colonnese and says, what is Jason Nichols like to work with? Right. And you're like, oh man, he's a terrible person to work with. He's disorganized. <laughs> he shows up late. I hate the guy. Uh you know, and I they decide, know. <laughs> right, right. Um, and they decide not to hire me. Right. That, you know, I can't say, oh, I didn't get due process. You know what I mean? Like, right. But that wouldn't be, so, but that wouldn't that be, position. but if I said those words, that, that wouldn't be true. And thus the, the result would be unjust, wouldn't it? 
It, it, it would be so, unjust, but I'm not. I'm, but the thing is, I'm not entitled. This is why when you you give a recommendation, it's sealed. I'm not entitled necessarily to that due process. You know no, what I you're mean? Not. Like, it, it, I know, but in, the in spirit that regard. of it. The spirit of it, though, is kind of important, though. I mean, the reason why we enshrine it at the criminal level is is obviously to protect against injustice. But it's an expression of where we should be morally generally, which is that we should we shouldn't just reflexively burn, you know, burn people at the stake on the basis of an allegation. Like we should be open minded enough to be like, well, actually, maybe that person's completely innocent. Maybe they're being wronged. So um I think that that's the right place to be, even if it's not in a criminal court of law. This is a normative question, as you might say, in, in a political science classroom. It's what ought to be. And it ought to be that people are afforded a sense of innocence until they are proven guilty as much as we possibly can do it. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I, I think it, it it certainly should be. Uh, you would hope that CNN, under those circumstances, CNN would never hire me. But uh, <laughs> CNN and, and, you know, I'm not looking for a job from CNN. Um, but I'm just using them as, as an example, but CNN hopefully would go to some of my other employers and get some sort of confirmation, you know, that, yeah, this guy's difficult to work with. Right. Yeah. He's, right. you know, all of those things. Um, and therefore make it a, almost like a civil judgment where it's more likely than not, you know, and the process, the, the process has begun to work out that way a bit. And, and for Andrew Cuomo, I mean, you're right. It hasn't it hasn't gone before a court yet. But Letitia James did do through her investigators a tremendous amount of footwork to begin to corroborate the allegations against him. Right. So she's got text evidence. She's got voicemails that he left for uh, some of the people who are accusing him. She's got she's got their testimony on the record. That's obviously important. So she's begun to gather the pieces of an important step in due process. No, I, I agree. Um, and, and this is why I think uh, Andrew afforded 100% due process in a court of law or in a civil court, even if he is sued uh, by one of these people who are making the allegations or all 11 of them. Would the impeachment um, proceeding in the New York State Assembly satisfy you? Um, I think that that is an, an element of, of due process, you know, for his job. Um, you know, a lot of us don't get due process in that regard in right. our jobs. If our if someone makes an allegation that's embarrassing enough, yep. you know, the job can let you go because, you know, it looks bad for the job. Yeah. And and so uh, calls for him to resign. You know, now there's this no resign under any circumstances. Um you know, and, and I, I'm glad that you've been really consistent with this. And I have to give you, you know, props for that, for being really consistent with the way you view these things for, for Andrew Cuomo, for someone like Matt Gates, who is, I think, accused of unspeakable crimes. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, I would have been someone who said, you know, just if I lived in his district, I'd be like, resign. This is an embarrassment. You know, for you and the, the evidence that they have against Matt Gates look really bad. I'm not saying he, you know, there's no I don't know if he actually committed the crime. I want to be clear about that. But it certainly looks bad with the Venmo and the, all of those things. And, and what we're probably more than likely going to hear from Joel Greenberg. It looks really bad. But Matt Gates has leaned in. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, all of these other Republicans lean in 
can I can I ask you? I I do wonder if Andrew Cuomo is actually going to resign, though. I, my sense is he will probably resign when he knows that the axe is going to fall, so that yeah. like if, like to basically you know basically be Richard Nixon, just like no, I'm out now before the impeachment. Um, I I think that could happen. We've seen rampant calls for from Democrats for a Democrat governor to resign before very recently. Remember Ralph Northam and his blackface KKK hood scandal. So he, mm-hmm. he, he comes out, he says, yep, you know, I, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed that was on my page. And then the next day he, he recants it and he's like, oh, that wasn't me. And then he had this horrible press conference where he was like, but I did dress in blackface when I was Michael Jackson at a party <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, I could moonwalk. You want to see me? And, and his wife's like, no, don't. Uh, no, 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 <laughs> He's like, okay, fine, I'm moonwalk. And then, and at the time, like everybody called for his resignation. Joe Biden called for it. Terry McAuliffe, who's now the nominee for, for uh, the Democrats in Virginia, called for his resignation. Mm-hmm. Now the two men are campaigning together. So just the fact that people call for resignations, I don't necessarily think that re- means it results in resignations. Things could yeah. change. Well, I'll tell you this. Um, the difference with Ralph Northam, and actually I want to go to someone else in, in that same kind of orbit, and that's Justin Fairfax. But um, Ralph Northam, the difference with Ralph Northam was he was accused of something that happened, not a crime, by the way. He was accused of something that happened. And I'm I'm not defending blackface. I'm not I'm not Megan. uh, What's her face? Uh, Megan Kelly. Um, I'm not defending blackface, but it's not a crime to be in blackface. It's not a crime to wear a KKK hood. (laughs) <laughs> um, it is a crime to touch a woman against her will. Yes, that's that is true. A, that is a crime. These are true things. Um, so, uh, and Ralph Northam, 30 years earlier, not while he was in office, unlike Andrew Cuomo, who was accused of sexually assaulting somebody while he was governor, you know? Yes. Um, so I think that those are very, very different things. And Ralph Northam, ever since then, has given actually the uh, many black activists and the black community in uh, in Virginia exactly what they wanted. Yes, so, he's been aggressive in that way. He's been paying absolutely. He, he's been uh, what is he's been paying the ransom. He's been like, oh, yeah. I've got to figure <laughs> out a way to get out of this. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it was ransom. I, I think some of those were actually ideals that he probably held. He was, you know, who knows? I, I don't yeah. know. I, Ralph Northam, if you would love to, if you would like to come on Vincent Jason Save the Nation, we'd love to have you. Yeah, um, even as a medical expert, we could have the pediatrician come on. Yeah, sure. No, for real. Um, I'll say this: uh, I, I was wondering about Justin Fairfax. Yeah, and I met Justin Fairfax one time, and Justin Fairfax, when you meet him, there are two people that I've met that I thought were really good. Like you could see their political talent. Right. Uh, Justin Fairfax is one of them to a lesser extent. The other, <laughs> embarrassingly enough, was um, Andrew Gillum. When I met Andrew Gillum, I was like, this guy's going places. And I met him in Florida when he was in like fourth place uh, in At that gubernatorial. No, no, we weren't partying <laughs> together. <laughs> no, sorry, we were I'm not. Sorry. Let yes. me be clear. I did not party with him. But, uh, uh. And and judging by the the dudes in the pictures, I, I wouldn't be his type anyway. But um, Andrew Gillum, um, yeah. who is who is incredibly talented, 
politically. I mean, the guy has talent. I met him at a rally with the Parkland kids. I mean, um, look how close he, he came to winning too. Yeah, look how no, close he, he came. He really could have, like, he had a future in the Democratic Party. We'd be in a very different world right now. I mean, the, that whole that whole conversation you and I just had a moment ago about Ron DeSantis, Fandrew Gillum was governor of Florida. Like, be a very, very different world right now uh, very down in different. Florida. Yeah. Very, very different. But, um, you know, with, with Justin Fairfax, I was somebody uh, on the record, even, you know, before I met him, uh, on the record saying he needed to resign. You know, he should do it for his family. He should do he it was for accused, his own future. For those who don't know, he was accused of sexual assault by two different women. Right. Uh, uh, and, one, and one of which gave a gigantic nation, national interview about this, uh, one of the morning shows, I think. Uh, and both yeah. of them were trying to seek hearings in the state legislature, which never occurred. Um, but there was obviously, it came at a weird time. There was pressure on the top three Democrats in the state, top three leaders in the state, uh, to resign for each of their scandals. You had Ralph Northam for his blackface scandal. You had Justin Fairfax for the sexual assault scandal. And then you also had uh, the uh, attorney general, uh, uh, Herring, who, Mark Herring, who was accused of, who, who admitted as well that he had worn blackface at an event. Uh, so <laughs> I, it, was, it was so crazy what was going down in Virginia all at once. And I, I think actually the swirl of all of that scandal for all three of them was the thing that relieved the pressure on all three of them. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, um, and again, let me be clear. I don't know whether Justin Fairfax is innocent or guilty or somewhere in between. I, I, I really don't know. Um, the one thing that I will say is that, you know, that I think strengthened his position, and he's actually running for governor right now of Virginia. Um, he was. He's not going to. Oh, he was. Drop out? Until, until, well, Terry McAuliffe won the primary, so. It, oh, yeah, were, I'm sorry. That's okay. No, but actually, it's interesting because I was just thinking when they were running and they were on that debate stage, the Hail Mary that Justin Fairfax threw on a debate stage against Terry McAuliffe and everybody else is that these Democrats, his own party, had treated him as if he was Emmett Till. He invoked Emmett Till as his defense on a debate stage. And I was, I, that was jaw dropping uh, to hear, of course. Um, and, you know, and I imagine, like, what do the women think? Like, the women who accused him, if this is all true, to hear him say something like that on a debate stage, that must have really, uh, really offended them. But I, yeah, I, we don't know. That's the truth. The, the due process yeah. never played out there. I think, you know, having a hearing, I think one of the things that undermined um, the women, and if I were their attorneys, I, I, I would have said, look, don't look for a hearing in front of the Virginia state legislature. That's because it makes it look political, you know what I mean? Uh, and like a political attack rather than going through all these other channels that you could. And he called for an investigation. Um, I don't understand why that's shocking to you that he would invoke Emmett Till. I, I don't like it. I think it's terrible. Um, but he would invoke Emmett Till when you were okay with Clarence Thomas invoking lynching at the uh at his confirmation hearing you were like that's totally appropriate um i don't think e any of it is appropriate that's where we're, we're going to disagree but um my thing with uh uh justin fairfax is he took two polygraphs and passed them both um regarding these these situations now polygraphs are not 100 mm -hmm. you can beat a polygraph um, so I, I want to be clear about that, that I'm not saying anything about 
the truth or, you know, what is not true. You know, uh, I, I don't remember. I remember one's name was Watson and the other one, I can't remember her name. Um, but whether their allegations are true or not, you know, only right. three people know. Um, but I will say he passed those polygraphs and he called for an investigation, which was the opposite of what Kavanaugh called for. Kavanaugh was like enough investigations. And it turns out the FBI was, you know, had their feet up the whole time anyway, and we're not really investigating. It. Um, so, you know, I, I was going to ask you about Justin Fairfax, particularly because you are a Virginia resident and, mm -hmm. and what you thought about it. Yeah, I mean, I I think due process should be afforded. I guess that's the summary to my answer. Um, you know, you'd like to get to the bottom of whether or not the guy actually sexually assaulted these women. It seems relevant. Um, but, you know, also this very much could seems to be on its way to becoming a very moot point given for for Virginia, for the Virginia electorate, because you've got um, an election this year and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and. I do want to also ask you, because you didn't really make clear, did, you were okay with Justin Fairfax bringing up Emmett Till and, and all of that. You thought that was appropriate. I thought it was totally out of step with, I just thought it was preposterous to think that his fellow Democrats were trying to do him like Emmett Till. I just did that, that the analogy was, was reaching like dramatically so, uh, and I know your the, the following question is then why am I okay with Clarence Thomas saying that he was the victim of a high tech lynching? Um, you know, I, I it's a fair question to ask me. I I think I guess it depends on how how both men felt. I mean, do you are you under the impression that it's hard to say obviously because we can't get inside their heads but that Justin Fairfax felt like this was a racial attack and that this was directed at him only because of his race, or was he just using that as a way to relieve the pressure on himself? And also, I guess the same would go for, did Clarence Thomas believe it was a racial attack and for real, or was he just using that to relieve the pressure on himself? I guess it depends on um, what both men truly felt. Well, let, let's, let's say this. Um, and we'll probably close out here, but I, I'll say this. All of the women in both of these cases are black. Yes, that's right. You know what I mean? All of the accusers were black women. Right. Um, so to compare it to Emmett Till and to compare it to, and hopefully we can get, I think we can get Justin Fairfax on the show. I'm going to, I'm going to see what we can, we can make happen. Um, and talk about some other things other than just this, hopefully, but you know, certainly I think he's open to talking about these issues. Um, the time I met him, he was actually on uh, Roland Martin's show. Shout out to the people from Roland Martin's show. Great people over there. Shout out to Jackie. Shout out to, to Chelsea. Um, but, you know, uh, he's, he's pretty open about talking about these things. I think it's important to note that the accusers, this is not like Carol Bryant. We're talking about three black women that accused these black men. Um, right. And I think, you know, to compare it to Emmett Till or lynching, lynch mobs didn't come 
on the allegation. First of all, the, the idea, I just want to state for our audience um, that most lynchings had nothing to do with allegations of rape. That's the myth. That's actually not what it had to do with. A lot of times the it was it was economic jealousy and issues like that. But, you know, even with the myth, when it did happen, which was rare, and there was an allegation, lynch mobs, white lynch mobs didn't come because a black woman was raped by a black man or accused of being raped by a black man. That didn't right, happen. So it's kind of a, yet another point is like the analogy just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. So that's why I think when, when you look at that other episode, that was the only time I ever lost it with you and kind of lost my cool was like, it was frustrating for me um, because it felt like diminishing what lynching is about and how lynching went down. Yeah. And I guess the difference, I guess the difference is like, it does seem like there's a lot of, of race hatred towards Clarence Thomas. And so, you know, it'd be, so that's, that's one of the reasons why I've always thought that the analogy seems suitable because it was directly, a lot of, a lot of the animosity towards him has been predicated on his race. And um, so for that, so, but I just think that the idea that Justin Fairfax would invoke it, it was, I think, uh, a desperate grasp for, for a defense. Yeah, I don't know. Um, when he lobbed that uh, comparison to a high-tech lynching, he lobbed it at, I believe it was all white and all male on that committee, right? Like, um, you know, Joe Biden was there. Joe Biden <laughs> and company, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there are Arlen Specter. Like these were, you know, uh, Republican and Democrat white men. And that's why it was so effective, um, was people watched this black guy saying, you are, you know, if this is a high-tech lynching, you all are the lynch mob, you know? Um, and I think, most of the insults about race that Clarence Thomas has been subject to have come from black people, not from white people, not from white men, not from right. white Republican men. Right, not, right. You know, and, and even less so from white Democratic men. It's mainly been black people who say yes. you have abandoned your community. You know, yes. so um, and, you know, I'm, I'm willing if we have some guests, we can have that discussion. Clarence Thomas, if we get him on the show, I'll have that discussion. But I, I definitely um, don't think that this analogy is apt. And one of the things that I said actually on a news hit recently, I think we need to chill out in some cases on the comparisons to things like the Holocaust and lynching and slavery. Yeah. You know, yeah. Jim Crow, I think, is a little bit different because Jim Crow, a lot of times, uh, was a different situation. Sometimes Jim Crow was very polite. It was just, you just know not to uh, go against the social norms that we have. But when we talk about lynching, if nobody's dying, I'm not necessarily trying to hear it. You know what I mean? Uh, we talk about slavery. If it's not a, people in bondage, I think there are some comparisons that are apt, even in the United States. If you want to talk about you know prison labor and things like that, I can hear that. Uh, sex slavery, I can hear that, but yeah, like someone's not in, slavery. Yeah, right. Yeah. If, we're, if if it's not someone in bondage, I think we need to chill out on that. If right. people aren't being exterminated, we need to chill out on calling everything. So I think what you're saying, I think what you're saying is, and I agree with this, even if you and I disagree a little bit on some of the edges, is that we need to bring the temperature down. 
we need to bring the temperature dramatically down because we've we've messed up a lot of debates by hyperbolizing them into places that don't lead to any sort of reasonable middle ground. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think there are some things where, you know, there are some situations where where it may be apt and may be called for, you know. Um, so I'm not saying never make those comparisons, but in most cases, yes, it is. It yeah. is exaggerated and it is hyperbole. And I think you can just state the facts and the facts will be bad enough to prove that freedom is being uh, infringed upon and that we're in a bad situation. But we are in a good situation here on Vince and Jason Save the Nation. We're actually talking about real issues. We're actually talking across the aisle and across the political spectrum, something you're not gonna get from cable news in those five minute segments where they just yell at each other. We're actually having good faith conversations. Like, subscribe, join our cause, join our mission, be part of the uh, effort to actually make this country a better place where we actually talk to our neighbors across racial lines and across uh, class lines and across all those kinds of lines. We're going to have great guests for you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Yeah, Get at us on YouTube, like, love, subscribe to Vince and Jason Save the Nation where anywhere a podcast is found. Peace out.